The scripture today is from Romans 16, 16 through 20, and then 25 through 27. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause division and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve the Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent, as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now, to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelations of the mystery that was kept secret from long ages, for has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. So good morning again. Good to see you. Uh, we uh, come to the end of our series in Romans this morning. Uh, this is the last Sunday we'll be in this book, and I, I want to end where we began because that's exactly what Paul does. Uh, and so as we move on to other things, one more week to kind of remember together these lessons we've learned from this, from this letter. Uh, what Paul is doing here at the very end is restating what he said at the very beginning of chapter 1. And so if you might remember that, he is calling us to what he refers to as the obedience of faith. So in chapter 1, verse 5, you find that phrase. And then here in chapter 16, verse 27, you find the phrase. And so one of the very first verses and one of the very last verses of, the Bible, of, of this letter. And remember what I've told you. Anytime you see something like that, when, when a, a you know, certain length of material is sandwiched between very similar statements, it means that... That is the summary statement of everything that comes in between. So everything that Paul's written about here in Romans really is to get us to the place where we are able to do this obedience of the faith. Paul's goal is right behavior and right belief. Not just right belief, not just right behavior. Uh, this is a theological letter, but his goal is something beyond just having good theology. He wants us to have right Belief, but also right behavior, because the two always go together, faith and love. You cannot have love without faith. It's just too hard. But there is no such thing as faith without love. If your faith isn't affecting your relationships, it's not the real thing. And so what we see, I just kind of thought of this even just this morning, at the end of the faith section of this letter, which is really chapters 1 through 5, uh, Paul writes this. He says, being justified by faith, we now have peace with God through Jesus Christ. And so Paul at the end of all of the talking about the gospel and laying it out and really kind of walking us through it, he says, the consequence of everything I've said to you is that there is peace with God. You can live with peace with God. And here at the, love, at the end of the love section, here at the very, very end of chapter 16, he says that the consequence of living out the implications of the gospel is that we should be experiencing peace with one another. So peace is a consequence of the gospel. We should be a people of peace. We live in a world of, of violence and hatred. We saw that yesterday as Jonathan prayed just a minute ago in, in the Pittsburgh area. But we, above all people, should be a people of peace. And so the question for us this morning as we wrestle with this text is, are you a peacemaker 
or are you a troublemaker? You've heard me say that? That's one of the favorite things that Ashley used to say to our kids all the time when there was, she would just sit them down. Are you being a peacemaker or are you being a troublemaker? Think of the story of Jesus calming the sea in the Gospels. Is, that, is your life just one of running around wherever there are storms and speaking peace into storms and bringing peace, bringing calm? Or are you the one that's stirring the storms up? Because we are to be a people of peace. And so, uh, that's what we want to talk about this morning. I want you to see three things here from this text. I want you to see the promise of peace, or the community of peace. Secondly, the practice of peace. And then thirdly, the power for peace, which is just this salutation that Paul gives yet again here, grace and peace. So, we want to look at the promise and the practice and the power for peace. And that's a lot of peace. And so, the Spirit is obviously at work this morning among us. So let's look at this text together. Okay, first, I want you to see the promise of peace in the community of peace that Paul's laying out here. The church is the visible expression in the world of the peace that God is bringing into the world. So God is bringing peace, not yet, it's on the way, but until he comes again, he has put the church in the world. And, and I said it there in your outline like this, I said the church is the hermeneutic of the gospel. In other words, how do we know that the gospel's true? Well, the answer is because of what we see in the church. Now, think about the implications of that. I mean, how, how does the world that we live in know that what we say we believe is true? The answer that God has provided for that is by what the world sees in his people, which is why the way we live our lives is so important. The world should look at the church and say, what's wrong with us? What do they have that we don't? How, how do they love one another like that? And how can I get that kind of power and peace and grace in my life too? That's, that's the way we're meant to live in the world. And so we have to ask the question, why is the world so filled with hate and violence? Why do people, you know, walk into synagogues and churches and start shooting people up? What is going on in our world? And the problem with the debate we have nationally about these things is it becomes so quickly politicized that we don't really ever get to an answer to that question. And the answer to the question is the story arc of the Bible. I mean, the Bible gives us the answer, and even here in chapter 16, verse 20, if you look at that verse, it really is the crucial verse of this last chapter of Paul's letter. He, it recalls the creation story. Paul says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Now, he's called the God of peace there. And so we're reminded that God made all things good, but into all of that goodness slithered an enemy, a serpent, we're told in Genesis chapter 3, ruining everything that God had made, sowing alienation that leads to disintegration. And so at heart, what's wrong with the world? At the very heart of it, what's wrong with the world is broken relationships. Because the center of all reality, we know, because God is Trinity, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so the center of all reality is relationship. And therefore, what is wrong with the world at its very heart is the, the breaking down of relationships. Sin is not just breaking the rules, it is a betrayal. We are alienated from God, the Bible says. We were made for a relationship with our Creator, but that relationship has been marred, and we don't feel close to Him like we were made to. There's now distance, there's absence. We are alienated from one another. We're even alienated from the creation. God's creatures growl at us because they know we have a quarrel with their maker. And this alienation brings disintegration. So when we're not properly related to God, we begin to fall apart. 
we literally don't work. Relationship with him is the fuel we're meant to run on, and if our relationship with him isn't right, then nothing is right because our hearts are not connected to him the way they are meant to be, and it's the same with one another. When we're not connected to one another, then our families and our friendships, they just become a mess. There's rivalry and selfishness instead of sacrificial love. That's the disintegration, and this is our experience of the world. It is because the world has been ruined by human sin and the malevolent forces of evil behind our rebellion. Now the question comes then, well, what is God doing about it? And the answer simply is the church. Now we'll get to all the details in just a minute, but remember in Genesis, God's response to sin was to destroy it at its root. And so in that scene in the garden, and if you wanna turn there, you can in Genesis three, verse 15, God turned to the invader, to the serpent, and he cursed him, and this is what he said. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he, he, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Theologians call this the proto-euangelion, the very first gospel. It is the promise of a seed, of a man, of a hero, a messiah, who would crush the head of the serpent, but in the process be crushed himself, which sounds a lot like the Lord Jesus Christ, doesn't it? Who would destroy evil, by being destroyed on the cross and who was raised and is reigning in heaven until all of his enemies are put under his feet and then he will come again to make all things new and there will be peace. You with me? There will be peace. Now that's the storyline of the Bible. It's really the storyline of history and that's what's, that's what's happening in the world, that the God of peace is bringing peace. Now it's not here yet. Things like yesterday remind us of that, but it's on its way. And the reason we can know it's true, the reason we can be absolutely sure that God will do everything he said he will do, the reason we can be confident that it will happen the way that God has said it will, is the church. I love uh, going to the movies. Uh, but if you've ever gone to the movies with me, you know my favorite part of going to the movies is the trailers. Uh, and if you're going to miss, I, literally, it's the truth. If I'm going to miss the trailers, I will forego the movie-going experience. So... <laughs> Right? You got to get there. That's the best part because you get to see all the cool movies that are coming that you're going to get to see later. So a lot of the time, you know, so the trailers are really important to me, but a lot of times you, you go to the movies, you see a trailer and you say, you know, you say, yeah, no, no thanks. Um, I don't need to, I don't need to go see that one. Or then you, you see the trailer and you see, oh man, that, that is going to be awesome. I can't wait. I've got to see that. And so it's a preview, Right? Well, I mean, that's the analogy I would use for you this morning. The church is a preview of what is coming into the world to replace this old aeon of violence and hate. And we're meant, the world is meant to see the church and to say, man, I've got to be a part of that. Not to look at us and say, those people are so dysfunctional, no thank you. Now, you starting to get what I'm saying? A people rightly related to God, a people who have peace with God, a people who are rightly integrated even within themselves, who, who uh, have the kind of confidence and humility and all of those things put together that, that people say there's something about that person's whole because their relationship with God has been put back together again, but not only right with God, but rightly related to one another, which is something in many ways that's totally unknown in the world. I mean, in the Ephesians 2 passage we read earlier, as an assurance of pardon, Paul says that the gospel of Jesus has a unique power to take people who are naturally enemies or just opposites 
and to bring them together in loving relationship. That there are, he said, there are dividing walls of hostility between groups. And we see this, I mean, we see this in our society. We see it between the rich and the poor, between black and white, between men and women, between conservative and liberal, whatever the labels might be. And what Paul says is Jesus dying on the cross made peace. What, what God did in Jesus fixed our relationship with God so that now we have peace with God and that peace with God actually begins to overflow and create peace among people who used to be separated from one another by these dividing walls of hostility and hatred. He said the love of God kills the hostility and the two who stood apart from one another are now reconciled and the result is one new place, one new man in the place of the two and that's the church. Now, it's exactly what you see here in Romans 16, and we could skip over uh, this chapter, and I didn't read all, of, uh, the reason I didn't read the rest of Romans 16 is because I did not want Vicky to have to pronounce all those names. Did you look at it, Vicky? I mean, can, right? They get on to me when I make them do hard things like that, and I, I just, there's just, I can't pronounce all of these names, but if you look, what Romans 16 really is, is just one long, uh, Paul is just saying, greet this person and greet this person. It's a long list of names of people who are part of this Roman church. And you might, you know, if we were doing communion Bible reading, I know how this would go. If you were in Romans 16, you would think, I can just skip all that. That's not important. Like you do with the genealogies too, don't you? Uh-huh. See, caught you. And if you did that, you'd, you'd not realize that this is one of the most important chapters in all of the Bible. Now, it may seem boring at first, but don't miss what's there because here's what you have there. If you look, and I won't, I won't draw it out. I'll just kind of summarize for you. What you have here in this long list of greetings is you have, you have the names of both men and women in the church. You have women in prominent positions in the church. Phoebe, chapter 16, verse 1, who was a prominent woman who held some sort of leadership role. She was the one entrusted with the letter from Paul, the scholars think, to bring to the Roman church. So she had some kind of clout some kind of role in Paul's ministry, but other women too. And so there was no, there was no kind of this, this sexist, the war of the sexes that we're experiencing in our culture. Really, there was none of that in the church. You had men and women both engaged in, in fruitful, effective ministry in the church. But you also look there, you have the names of both slaves and the ruling class. And the scholars point this out. So the church in Rome... In the church in Rome, the rich and the poor were there together. They were living right, right alongside of one another. There was no division among the classes of people the way we see in our own culture. And Rome was more divided among socioeconomic lines than we are, but there's no classism there. And then there are names of both the Greek and Jewish believers. So you have Greek names and you have Jewish names there. And the scholars say, well, then obviously, somehow in this church in Rome, the different races and Colors of people were coming together. There were different ethnicities all pieced together in a beautiful kaleidoscope of grace. And it was something the world had never seen. This wildly diverse group of people with natural hostilities towards one another, men and women, right? Greek and Jew, slave and ruling class all coming together with natural hostilities toward one another, now crazy about another, and everybody included, and everybody on the same level, all of the old hierarchies and hostilities blown to smithereens by the power of the gospel. And what Paul's teaching is, is that's how you know the gospel works. Romans 16 is the evidence that Romans 1 through 15 
is telling the truth. And what I want to say to us this morning is the world is impoverished when the church isn't like this. And the church isn't like this because we've lost our our theological footing. And so here's the promise of peace. It's something for us to strive towards, something to to really lead and guide our, our repentance this morning. But secondly, we want to see, so in the ways that we begin to experience this with one another, uh, we, need, we need to see the practice of peace because this is something that doesn't just happen, we have to fight for it. And so Paul writes here, look at verse 16, chapter 16, he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. And that word greet means to draw to yourself or to embrace. I mean, this is not a lukewarm handshake and a pat on the back. There is affection and warmth. There's a kiss. He says, kiss one another. And we, we tend to be a standoffish culture of people, but other cultures, even today, greet one another with, with great affection, with hugs and kisses. And I've traveled some in the world, and I can, I can tell you it can be a little bit uh, unnerving for Westerners. But what Paul's saying is, is we should have enthusiasm and infection for one another. Paul's saying, you know, Paul's saying there should be that kind of love for one another. If you've seen the videos of people serving in the military who, who uh, come home and surprise their friends and family, I mean, what happens? What kinds of greetings do they, do they get? There are screams and hugs and tears and kisses. And that's, I want to say to you, now don't make fun of me when I say this, but I want to say to you, that's what the greeting time should be like every Sunday in our church. It should be. I'm serious. And I know a lot of you don't like that part of, your, of our service. Some of you wait until it's over to come to church because it's so uncomfortable. And so if you're introverted or if you're a guest, it can be awkward. It can be scary. I get it. But I think we have to do it because so many people in our, in our world are starving for affection. There are people who come here and the handshake or the hug they get during that time is the only physical contact they will get with another person all week. And a smile can change a life because we're so starved for kindness. And historically, historically, uh, it's called the passing of the peace. In other words, we are, we are mediating to one another in the way that we greet one another on a Sunday, the reality that in Jesus Christ we've been made right with God. We're overcoming all of our fears and doubts and hesitancies in the way that we shower one another with love. And the reason there's so much emotion in those military family reunions is, of course, because of the danger of the mission and then the relief when the loved one comes home safely. And that's why I say our greetings on Sunday should look like that, because every week we send one another out into a war zone that is far more dangerous than Iraq or Afghanistan. And when we see one another the next week, there should be relief and joy to say, you made it. You made it home. You made it back. And if our hearts were right, that's the way it would be. And I'll tell you, it's what heaven's going to be like. Made it. We've been made in the image of God. And God is a community of persons, which means we've been made to be delighted in. And if you've never experienced that with family or with friends, I'm so sorry. Those, run, those wounds run deep. But the Christian gospel is that Jesus Christ has made it possible for us to enter into and experience the life and love of the persons of the Trinity for one another. And that's the only thing that can heal your heart. But that can be somewhat hard to grasp at times. And so Christianity also makes possible a community of people who heal the wounds of neglect and sin, not just by putting up with one another, because that won't do. The apostle is stirring us up to warm affection for one another. We have to fight. We have to fight against our hearts being hard and cold. Because that's Satan's work. Uh, You know, we don't gut it out relationally with one another because that's not enough. Arouse your affections, Paul says, for one another. If you can't because of sin, which happens, 
If there's distance and there's lukewarmness, then do whatever you have to do in the name to name the offense so that the warmth and the intimacy can return because anything less than offering to one another that kind of love and affection and warmth and greeting is sin. It means our hearts have become cold. Now, we are to be peacemakers, not troublemakers in the church, and we take vows to do just that, to study the church's purity and its peace. And as I've already said, we take this time in our service every week to practice the habit of making peace because our faith is always working itself out in love. Now, we've been reading Amos in Community Bible Reading, and I hope you're reading along with us. And Amos says that if there is not love and peace and justice among us, then we ought to just put down our hymnals and pack up our instruments and go home. The text calls us to vigilance, to guard this peace at all costs, and it shows us what to do with those who threaten it. So there's a positive thing. Be affectionate towards one another, but there's the negative. Watch out, he says, verse 17, for those who cause divisions and create obstacles, avoid them. We're to be protective of this. Now, two types of people Paul warns about there. The one is a relationally divisive person who goes about sowing discord, and a lot of times using their words. Did you read Psalm 140 yesterday? Did anybody read that? We, we do this thing called community Bible reading. We're on, I'm just kidding. So on Saturdays, we have a psalm. And in Psalm 140 yesterday, Paul, uh, Paul uh, the psalmist is, is lamenting, um, lamenting the violence of men who are stacked against, us and, and, against him. And as you go on and you read, what you realize he's talking about is people who are using their words. People who are using their words to do violence and to hurt and to condemn other people. And there are people who are relationally divisive, who go around sowing discord, and most of the time it's with words. And the person who feels at odds with someone else in the community and then rallies people to themselves and against the other side, or a person who comes into a conflict as a third party and inflames the situation, either intentionally or just carelessly, instead of helping to bring peace, who adds fuel to the fire. But then there's the doctrinally divisive person, we're, we're told there, who uses their opinions, a la Romans 14 and 15, to stir people up against leaders or certain groups against other groups in the church. And who create, So there are those who cause division, and then there are those who create obstacles. And these obstacles, it's the same word here as we've been seeing the last few weeks, that word scandalon, and it refers to something that gets in the way of people living in the freedom and the grace of the gospel. And Paul says this is a teaching contrary to the doctrine in which you've been taught, in the first part of the letter, and we've spent all those weeks talking about this, but here I want you to see the apostle's pretty brutal because this is a big deal. He says, watch out for those divisive people, and that word means to mark them. Well, think about that. Mark them, and then keep your eyes on them. And he says, and if they start to cause any trouble, just stay away from them. There's an interesting parallel in Titus 3, and it says this. Here's what Paul writes to Titus. He says, avoid foolish controversies, dissensions, and quarrels. Wouldn't our lives be so much better if we just heeded that advice? For they are unprofitable, unprofitable and worthless. Who knew he was talking about Facebook? I mean, the Apostle Paul, 2,000 years ago. He says, as for the person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. We are to have a zero-tolerance policy for this sort of behavior, any destroying of the peace of the church for ourselves and everybody else because the peace of the church is so paramount because when there's discord and when there's just emotional distance and coolness between us, hell is winning. 
The cross is trampled on. But listen, every time you kiss a saint, you're crushing the serpent. But lastly, and I gotta finish, so that there, there has to be some spiritual power other than the forces that are at work in the world to make this possible because if not, we will end up just looking like the rest of the world that can't seem to find this peace that's only offered to us in the gospel. And look, there is. If you look down at the very last verses of the letter, verses 25 through 27, it says this. Paul writes this doxology and this prayer for these people. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that has been revealed. And then he goes on to bring about the obedience of faith. And that word able, verse 25, look there. That word able is the word dunamis, literally dynamite. It is explosive power. It's the same word as all the way back in Romans chapter 1 where Paul says that the gospel is the power of God. The gospel is the dynamite of God. The gospel is not just a set of beliefs. It's a spiritual power. Another way to say this is the gospel works. And the way we know it works is because of what we see in the church. The gospel changes people. It makes things possible that would otherwise be completely impossible. Saul, the persecutor of the church, becomes Paul, the apostle, writing this letter to the Romans. Martin Luther, which, you know, this is... Reformation Sunday, Reformation Week this week. Martin Luther, that miserable, unhappy monk, counting his beads and fasting and plumbling his body and racked with guilt, and yet not able to shake the feelings of condemnation and self-hatred, becomes the fierce, free herald of the Reformation. Groups of people who otherwise have every reason to despise one another becoming a family. The question is how? And the answer, Paul tells us, is that it's through the simple, repetitive, powerful hearing of the good news of Jesus Christ. The gospel, which is the preaching of Jesus Christ, do you see that there in those verses? The power for Christianity, in other words, is, is Jesus. Christianity is all about him, not you. Notice, Paul doesn't say, go and crush Satan under your feet. He says, God will soon crush him. And from Genesis 3, we know that there's only one who does that. The seed of the woman who defeats the serpent is a hymn there in Genesis 3.15, singular noun there. And so I got to remind you, you're not the hero, he is. The Apostle John writes this, he says, everyone born of God overcomes the world. Doesn't that just rouse you up, right? Oh, I'm going to go, oh, let's go charge hell with a water pistol. But he reminds us, and the victory that has overcome the world is this, our faith. The victory that overcomes the world is faith. Again, obedience for Paul is the obedience of faith, that obedience that comes from faith. So it's not my work that accomplishes this, it's his work. And the way I enter into his work is to stop trying to do things on my own and rest in him, and that's what faith is. And so faith, not work, is the right response because Christianity is grace, not merit. What makes all of this possible is grace, which is why here at the end Paul says, as a summary of this whole book, he says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The very next sentence, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Because that is the power at work in the church. That is what makes all that Paul says here possible. The book, the book begins with this customary greeting, grace and peace. And here in these verses, the two go together again. Grace brings peace. Peace flows from grace. If there is no peace, if there's jealousy and dissension and relational conflict instead it's because grace has been sidelined but here's the gospel the gospel teaches us this when we were God's enemy Christ died for us Jesus met our hostility 
with mercy and self-sacrifice to make peace and to win our hearts. And that's the power. That change of heart brought about by God's love being made demonstrable when we realize that he loved us best when we were at our very worst. So when that comes home to our hearts, we can begin to meet hostility, not with our own hostility, but with mercy and forgiveness and self-sacrifice too. And the result will be peace, but only when we learn the skill of loving other best when we're at our very worst. But listen, that's Christianity 101. That, that's just what the church is. You with me? Amen? That is what the church is. Now, one last thing, and then I need to be done, and that is I just want to comment on what this feels like. Because chapter 16, verse 19 says, God will soon crush Satan. In other words, not yet, but soon. And so we won't experience this fully until heaven. Until then, we will wake up to news of mass shootings like we did yesterday because sin remains. But here's the good news for us this morning. The peace of God has come into the world. The kingdom of heaven is in our midst. And every time we forgive, instead of holding on to hate, we push evil back. And every act of grace is a stomp on Satan's head. Until Christ returns to make all things new. Let's pray, okay? So, Father, make us this, this kingdom and community of peace. Because we know all too well how our hearts can get sideways, not only with you, but with one another. And we can, we, cannot, we cannot walk in the freedom and the grace that you've purchased for us in the gospel. But instead, we can, where we have been loved at our very worst, we can meet others at their very worst and, and think that they, demand, that they deserve something from us other than grace. Some stern rebuke or correction. Forgive us. Forgive us that we too often we were honest to find ourselves making trouble for others instead of making peace and call us back to the beauty and the truth and simplicity of your gospel this morning and give us your spirit to do this great work because we know it's at stake the stakes are high here what the world is to know of you is largely dependent upon what they see to be true of us and so we need you and we need your spirit to shape us as a people after your life and after your image. And so come and do just that. Make us what we'll sing here. Uh, may these words be our prayer. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, this world desperately needs peace, amen. And so he sends us to do just that, to be peacemakers in a world of incredible conflict and pain. And so as we're sent now, uh, we, we are sent with these words, and these words are the reminder of what we sang. His banner over me is love. Uh, as he sends you, he promises to go with you. And so reach out for his grace, and in his grace, in the power of his grace, go and make peace. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace. Please come celebrate with us tonight at 4 o'clock. Uh, we'll see you then.